All right, thank you, Daniel. I want to dismiss our kids, pre-K and kindergarten, to Kids Connection. So if that applies to your little one or applies to you, if you're one of those little ones, you can go through these back doors, and room three is where that group meets. Also, just to let you know, we will be uh, observing the Lord's Supper, celebrating the Lord's Supper here at the close of uh, our time this morning. So just prepare your heart for that. If you're visiting with us, we practice open communion, which is to say we invite you to come and share the Lord's table uh, with us. If, of course, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, that celebration is open to you. Mark uh, chapter 9 is where we find ourselves today, at the end of Mark chapter 9. So we'll finish that chapter uh, this morning, move into chapter 10 next week. So turn to Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking through Blue John Canyon in Utah's Canyonlands National Park. While descending a deep slot canyon, a suspended boulder became dislodged, crushing his right hand against the canyon wall. He was at the bottom of the canyon, but his arm was now trapped. Ralston had not informed anyone of his hiking plans, therefore no one would be searching for him. Assuming that he would die, he spent five excruciating days slowly sipping his small amount of remaining water and nibbling at his small amount of remaining food. He expended what energy he had attempting to extricate his arm from this boulder. His efforts, efforts were futile. He could not free himself from what was found out to be a 800-pound chalk stone. On the fourth day in the canyon, he realized that in order to free his arm, he would have to cut through its bones. But he knew the tools he had would not enable him to do so. When he ran out of food on the fifth day, he carved his name, date of birth, and presumed date of death into the sandstone canyon wall and videotaped his last goodbyes to his family. He did not expect to survive that next cold desert night, but after waking at dawn the following day, Thursday, May 1st, he had an epiphany that if he could break his radius and ulna bones, he could potentially cut himself free. A mechanical engineer by training, Ralston generated enough torque to break the bones in his lower arm. After tying a tourniquet, he used a cheap multi-tool, one he described as what you'd get if you bought a $15 flashlight and got a free multi-tool included in the set, to amputate his lower arm, which took about an hour with the dull two-inch blade. After freeing himself, Ralston still had to get back to his car. He climbed out of the slot canyon in which he'd been trapped, rappelled down a 65-foot cliff one-handed, then hiked out in the midday sun. He was eight miles from his vehicle. He had no phone. While hiking out of the canyon, he encountered a family on vacation. They gave him Oreos and water, and then they hurried to the authorities he was eventually rescued six hours after, after amputating his arm. Ralston had feared he would bleed to death, but he did not. He lost 40 pounds, including 25% of his blood volume. Ralston fully recovered, 
and is still an avid adventurer and climber to this day, he said of the operation he performed on himself, he said, I smiled as I cut off my arm. I was grateful to be free. One of the more extraordinary adventure stories of our time. Why did I share it? Well, let's read our text for this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May God bless the reading of his word. As I prepare to preach each week, I spend a good amount of time examining the passage that we are studying, reading it and praying over it, meditating upon it. In addition to that, I consult a variety of sources to help me better understand the passage, books and commentaries and and, and word study material, other sermon manuscripts as well. As one preacher described his approach to sermon prep, I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. And that pretty much describes me as well. I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. And here's the thing about today's passage of Scripture. Actually, there's three things about today's text. First, a consensus opinion of the meaning of this passage is difficult to find. Lots of guys who are much smarter than me disagree on some of the teaching here from Jesus, namely verses 49 and 50. Second, the the language and the ideas in this passage, as I just read them, are incredibly confrontational. This is serious, serious teaching. Jesus gives us thoughts on sin and hell and eternal punishment. There is a significant amount of weight to this passage. Thirdly, two of the verses in your Bible, verses 44 and 46, probably don't even belong in this passage. If you have an ESV, they omitted those verses for you, but other translations keep those verses in. Now, the added verses don't alter the meaning of the passage per se, but scholars would agree that those two verses were not a part of the original inspired writing, therefore they probably don't belong. What happened was some ancient scribe was making copies of Mark, and for added emphasis, he wanted to make the three exhortations that are in verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47, he wanted them to perfectly parallel one another. And so he imported the line that we read in verse 48, which reads, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He added that to the warnings that we have in verses 43 and 45 which is why the phrase is repeated in verses 44 and 46. 
It's a phrase taken from Isaiah 66 and verse 24. That's the last verse of the book of Isaiah. And so it's not like this guy imported something that wasn't already Scripture. He wasn't coming up with his own ideas. He added to Scripture with Scripture. But still, today's text, what we have here is a passage that's difficult to interpret. It contains disputed material, and it's extremely confrontive, and to some it's even offensive. So that should make for a really fun morning, shouldn't it? All right, let's roll. And uh, to set it in context, I I think we need to remember that the end of chapter 8 and the start of chapter 9, those places in the book of Mark mark two significant transitions. First, we see a transition away from portraying Jesus as authoritative king. The whole first half of the book is dedicated to to the subject that Jesus is king. So in the second half, we have a transition away from that, where now we see him more as suffering servant. Remember, as we get into the second half of the book, Jesus keeps explaining to the disciples, he's already done it two or three times thus far, that his mission is to die, that he's going to go to a cross and be killed. So that's the first transition, away from King Jesus to suffering servant. Second, the other transition is we see Jesus' ministry turn away from the crowds, away from miracles and and mass teaching events, and move toward training the 12 disciples on what it really means to be a disciple. And here in the passage, that's exactly what we have. Jesus is talking discipleship, and we see that he's taking discipleship to what we might call a radical level, which is why I've titled this message Radical discipleship. And as we get into the outline, let me just talk about the word radical. It's a word you hear, it's a word you know. If you grew up in the 80s like I did, you know, you shortened it a little bit and said rad all the time. Everything was rad. Maybe you had a shirt that said real big rad on it. I think there was actually an organization, Rockers Against Drunk Driving, rad. You guys remember that? Sorry, I don't know where that came from. But it's had a significant, also, radicals have had a significant insurgence or resurgence lately. There's a popular Christian book that, by, that title, by that title, Radical, by David Platt. I commend that book to you. It's excellent. And it's also a term that gets attached to many of the terror groups in our world today. Radical Islam, radical jihadists, as if there could be another kind of jihadists other than a radical one. And if you look in the dictionary, you'll find two meanings for the word Radical. Number one will be that this word means basic or fundamental or foundational, something primary or essential. The second meaning, which may be the one that's more popular today, is that it also means something that deviates to its extreme. So when we think of something radical, we think of something revolutionary or something severe, or as I mentioned, something fanatical. But really, the word is both of these things. It's a word that refers to something that is fundamental, that first definition, and fanatical. Something that is intrinsic and intensive. Something that is essential and extreme. Therefore, radical is a great word to use as an adjective for discipleship. Because discipleship is something fundamental and fanatical. 
something intrinsic and intense, something essential and something extreme. The basics of being a disciple really are radical. So radical discipleship from this text will involve three facets. Three facets. Radical love, radical purity, and radical suffering. Those are my three points this morning. Radical love, radical purity, and radical suffering. First, radical love. Discipleship is a call to radical love. Verse 42 speaks of having such a love for other believers that the last thing you would ever want to do is lead them into sin. Jesus warns that before you would lead another believer to sin, you would be better off to die a horrible death. Which, this follows exactly the thought of verse 41. That whatever is done to a follower of Jesus is in effect done to Jesus himself. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That's what verse 41 says. If you, if you minister to a believer, you are ministering to Christ. Conversely, if you lead a believer astray, you are doing that to Christ. So let me help you relate to this. My kids belong to me. They're mine. You know how I feel if you do something really, really nice for my kids? I will feel like you have done something nice to me. You know how I feel if you do something really, really hurtful and mean to my children? You will have hurt me, and you, have, you will really have hurt their mom, so you better look out. <laughs> that same idea exists with Christ, and those two belong to him. Think you see that? The reference to little ones in verse 42 doesn't refer to just children, but rather anyone who believes in Jesus. So it both refers to the illustration of the child that we see in verse 36. Remember, Jesus grabs this, this child and sets him in front of the disciples and says, you're going to be ministering to, to those such as these. But it also points to the man who was driving out demons, that man who John rebuked and tried to stop that we read about in verse 39. Anyone. We have a sober warning here against inhibiting, injuring, or destroying the faith of any ordinary, everyday disciple. The Greek word for this idea of causing one to sin is scandalizo. It means to cause to stumble or to offend And in this instance, it refers to destroying someone's faith or causing them to fall away from God. Jesus is saying to John, if you caused that man who you rebuked and told to stop doing miracles in my name, if you caused that man to fall away from me, here's what would be better for you. It would be better if a millstone... Now, a millstone was a round, just a huge stone wheel probably anywhere from two to five feet in diameter. It was about 12 to 24 inches thick. It was used to crush grain. And I can just see Jesus as he's teaching this lesson, standing next to or or within close proximity to one of these millstones, saying it would be better to have hundreds, if not thousands of pounds tied around your neck and tossed into the sea than to cause any believer in him to fall away. 
And if that idea of drowning wasn't horrific enough, the prospect of being tossed into the sea, this was a traumatic thing for an ancient Jew. Jews were superstitiously afraid of the sea. The depths of the sea, they they horrified them. The sea was seen as a place of wrath and, and, and judgment. So this is an intense warning for these disciples who were Jews. And within this warning, what Jesus is calling for here is radical love. Radical love. The kind of love that works very hard not to be a source of sinful solicitation to another person. To not be that person who solicits others toward lust of the flesh, toward lust of the eyes, or materialism, or the love of the world, toward pride. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't lead others to sin. The world does, absolutely the world does, but not love, not the true disciple. You might be asking, well, how is it that we can lead others into sin? I mean, aren't people you know, responsible for their own sin? How could I lead somebody into sin? Well, I'll give you four simple, general answers to that question. Number one, by direct temptation. I'm sure that's obvious. If you tempt somebody to sin, if you invite someone to sin, maybe you ask them to lie or to gossip or to cheat. Maybe you invite people to love the things the world loves. Perhaps you draw them into an ungodly enterprise, ungodly entertainment, whatever. That's direct temptation. And I think you understand why that's not good, right? There's a second way. It's by indirect temptation. You provoke them to, to, to jealousy by maybe flaunting what you have. You provoke them to, to anger by indifference or unkindness, by inattention, by lack of affection or lack of forgiveness or, or lack of kindness, overbearing expectations maybe. And you can do that directly or indirectly, pulling people away from intimacy with God and into sin. Thirdly, another way, that you can cause people to stumble is by just setting a sinful example. Simply by doing things that people see that are overtly sinful and unrighteous. And here's what I know on this point. When you don't think people are watching, they almost always are. Dads, moms, when you don't think they're watching, they almost always are. So either by direct temptation, indirect temptation, by setting a sinful example, or maybe fourthly, by just failing to stimulate righteousness, failing to encourage godliness. What does the church do when it comes together? It's to encourage one another toward love and good works, and much more so as we see the day approaching. If your pattern is to sow discord, to be divisive, to complain, to accuse, and to not serve, you're likely causing other people to do the same. You're not stimulating righteousness. You're causing offense. You're causing others to stumble. And from the words of Jesus here, I say, woe to you. So in any of those ways, those overlapping, intertwined ways, we can lead others to sin. And our Lord says, you'd be better off to die a horrible death than to do that. And here's what I mean. To love is to want what is best for people. Sin is not what is best for people. 
So radical discipleship is radically loving people away from sin and offense and stumbling and into righteousness and joy. That's radical love. Let's move to radical purity. That's what's laid out in verses 43, 45, and 47. And of course, radical love and radical purity go together. Because you're never going to be able to lead someone else into righteousness if you're not righteous yourself. So the danger of verse 42, leading others to sin, is eliminated when you deal with sin the way verses 43 through 48 prescribe. Now, before I go any further, let me say this. I think you've heard me preach long enough to know that I would never teach that you can please God with your own righteousness. That you can obtain salvation by your own good works, right? You know I don't teach that. I teach the gospel, which says to be saved, you are utterly dependent on the righteousness of Christ to save you. You're justified in the sight of God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for you. That and that alone saves you. None of us merit salvation by our own efforts and righteousness and purity. If that were possible, Jesus would not have to have come and be sacrificed for us. I don't preach salvation by works, that somehow your own efforts and purity can attain salvation. I don't preach that, and either does this passage. However, alongside our salvation in Jesus Christ, there is an urgency in the New Testament, toward personal holiness. An urgency about fleeing sin and destroying the works of the flesh. Paul talks about this. John the Apostle talks about this. Peter talks about this. James as well. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about how we are to deal with our own sin. And he says, when sin comes into your life, you must deal with it harshly and decisively. Therefore, if a relationship is leading you into temptation and sin, you need to sever that relationship. If someone is is actively leading you into temptation and sin, if there's an activity that is bringing you into temptation and sin, you need to cut that activity out of your life immediately and thoroughly. I say thoroughly because a lot of times... A lot of times we'll, we'll clear the cobwebs, but we won't crush the spider. We'll deal with the appearance, sort of the outward manifestation, but not the root cause. Jesus is saying, cut the sin off at the root. Leave behind that thing that has left you trapped and ensnared. Remember the Aaron Ralston story? He knew that if he didn't sever his arm, he'd die. Cutting off his arm was the only path to freedom, and he smiled as he did it. Now, one thing you need to know is that this teaching here from Jesus is hyperbolic, which is to say he's exaggerating. He's not actually calling for self-mutilation. Jesus is not commanding us to cut off our hands and our feet and to gouge out our eyeballs. You'd be a sad-looking bunch if that were true. And I'd be a sad-looking, you know, preacher if that were true. However, just because it's hyperbolic, we, we, we shouldn't allow the hyperbole to dismiss the seriousness of what Jesus is calling for here. 
the metaphors of, of eyes and hands and feet, these are intended to be an all-inclusive description of, of what we view and what we do and where we go. Jesus is saying, your struggle with sin, it's at every level. And if you're going to be my disciples, it has to be dealt with. Because if you don't deal with it, it's going to lead you and others astray. And there's really nothing worse than that. So Jesus warns his disciples that if there is anything you're seeing, if there's anything you're doing, if there's anywhere you're going that's causing you to sin, you've got to deal with it. You have to repent and turn the other way from it because nothing in this world is so valuable that it is worth going to hell over. The word hell here comes from the word Gehenna. Gehenna was the name given to the Valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem, just outside the city walls. 750 years before Jesus came along, it had been a site devoted to pagan worship. It was at the Valley of Hinnom that the people of Israel, they had fallen into idolatry and actually sacrificed their children to the false god Molech. They did that under the reign of King Ahaz and Manasseh. Good King Josiah came along and tore down the pagan altars that were there and proceeded to desecrate the site. And as a way to desecrate it further, he turned the valley into the city garbage dump. And it remained a garbage dump for centuries. So by Jesus' day, Gehenna was this horrible place. Fires burned there continually. Wild dogs roamed the area, feeding on the carcasses of animals and criminals. It it was dirty and smelly. And because of the fires and, and the composting waste, it remained intensely hot. A fitting description of what, of what hell is. And before you turn me out because you don't want to hear any more about hell, remember that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the New Testament. Jesus talked about money and hell more than anyone in the Bible. Meaning if Jesus had a church today, no one would show up to hear him preach. Of the 12 times hell is referred to in the New Testament, 11 of those are by Jesus. Do I want to believe hell is a real, uh, is a real place? Truthfully, no, I do not. Do I believe that it is? Yes, because Jesus said it was repeatedly. Matthew 25, 41, hell is a place of punishment. Luke 16 and Mark 9, what we have here, hell is a place of fire, unquenchable fire. Again in Luke 16, hell is a place of thirst. Revelation 14, hell is a place of pain. 2 Thessalonians 1, hell is a place of divine wrath. Matthew 13, hell is a place of frustration and anger. 2 Thessalonians 1, again, hell is a place of eternal separation from God. Hell is real, but it's avoidable. You don't have to go there. You can be saved from God's wrath if you would come to Jesus. Hell's not fun to talk about, but Jesus is. And the reason he's fun to talk about is because he is our Savior from sin and death and ultimately hell. 
And if you want to be saved today, if you want to be in right relationship with God, actually have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe, you look to Jesus. And not only do you get that that relationship, but you escape the fires of a just and appropriate hell. As the old saying goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. When it has ruined and taken all you have, it will cast you into hell and torment you there for eternity. Jesus is saying, therefore, being committed to your sin, being committed to your sin is not worth going to hell over. It's not worth it. Cut it off. Let's move to our third point, radical suffering. And to this third point, you might be thinking, you know, wouldn't hell be radical suffering? I mean, what do you mean by radical suffering? Well, I mean that in these verses, Jesus warns his people that serving him will require sacrifice and suffering. Verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone shall be salted with fire. As you know, fire is a purifier. Fire is a cleansing agent. Put an unpure piece of gold in fire, and the gold will separate from the dross and come out purified. Perishable things get consumed by fire. Imperishable things get purified by fire. Jesus is telling that that those who would be his servants can expect to be cleansed and purified through the fire. Sort of, as long as we're on the subject of hell, let's talk about fire. You're going to be purified through fire. In other words, God will allow us to go through persecution and trials in an effort to make us more like Jesus. God sends us into the fire so that the flesh and its power over us might be burned away. God is dealing with our sin, too. God is dealing with our flesh as well. He's not leaving it to us to cut it off. He's purifying it out of us through suffering and persecution. This would have been profound news to those who were persecuted in Rome. Remember that the Roman Christians are the first to read this gospel, this gospel of Mark. And these Christians in Rome, they have seen Nero just do diabolical things to the church. They have seen him take Christians and impale them on long poles, cover them with pitch, and light them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. Does that not give some meaning to being purified by fire? Of course it does. Jesus goes on to say, and then every sacrifice shall be salted with Salt. This is a reference back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. When a sacrifice was offered, it was to be offered with salt. Again, salt was a purifying agent. It made the sacrifice acceptable to the Lord. Jesus is telling his followers that we are to be a willing, acceptable sacrifice, giving up life and limb to serve him and to serve others in this life. Remember, the disciples are struggling with what it means to be one of the twelve. They're struggling with who this king is and what the kingdom is going to look like. They think it's going to give them prestige and position. 
And Jesus is saying, no, you aren't my disciples to gain power and wealth and honor. No, 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 no. Being a disciple of Jesus means giving your life away. Laying it down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. In verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good. And so it is. Salt was a valuable commodity in that day. Our word salary comes from the Latin word salarium. It referred to the fact that the Roman soldiers were paid often their wages in salt, which in the ancient Near East, salt could be traded almost ounce for ounce with gold. Salt was a preservative, a a flavoring, an antiseptic, and a currency. It was a very valuable thing. Salt is good. And so Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. And in this context, to have salt means to be true. Jesus is telling us that if we are truly the children of God, then we should act like and live like children of God. How do we do that? Well, let's review the teaching. We do not cause others to stumble and fall into sin. We avoid sin at all costs in our own lives, cutting it off at every turn. We willingly embrace the salt of a sacrificial life and the persecution that might come with that. And at this point, I'll just conclude with this. At this point, you should just feel terrible. (laughs) Right? I mean, this chapter, Jesus has been just just banging away at pride, really. He's trying to infuse a a humility in these disciples that they they will honor. This is why this final, the final phrase in the verse, be at peace with one another. You know what it takes to be at peace with one another, usually? It takes a great deal of humility. Humble people don't typically fight. Prideful people do, all the time. Humble people, not so much. So this is designed to humble them. This kind of introspection, this kind of thinking about your sin, this kind of, 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 of realizing, man, Sin isn't just the sum total of my behaviors. Sin is a heart problem that's never going to go away from me. In fact, the closer I get to God, the more sinful I become. Because I see God in His holiness, and compared to that, oh, what a wretched man that I am. But this, so it's, it makes sense. You, you feel terrible. You know you've caused others to stumble. You, you know there is sin in your life that, that you fail to root out and cut off. Suffering and sacrifice, those are things you run from, not run to. At the end of this passage, you, you just feel bad. Am I alone in this? If I'm not, know this. Remember this. The Lord Jesus... He never caused a single person to stumble or sin. The Lord Jesus, whatever he did, wherever he went, whatever he looked upon, never caused him to sin. Perfect holiness was his life. The Lord Jesus took the ultimate suffering, death. He took the suffering, he took the death to be the kind of sacrifice necessary to give you life. 
He went through hell so you don't have to. What does radical discipleship hinge upon? It hinges upon a radical Savior. Not upon your self-effort, not upon your determination to root out sin, but to constantly look to the Savior who took your sin. It was nailed to the cross. And then that should be the thing that compels you to not remain in it. As we look to the communion table, I just want us to pray a prayer. This is a a prayer in a book called The Valley of Vision. This is a collection of Puritan prayers. And the Puritans had a way of thinking about sin and repentance that is largely lost today. There's some powerful words in this little booklet. And I just want us to pray through this together as as we approach the Lord's table, think about our sin and what we want God to do with it, and what we need to do with it. So let's bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray this together, and then I'll have Jared come and and lead us through communion. Lord Jesus, kill my envy. Command my tongue. Trample down self. Give me grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, peaceable. To live for Thee and not for self. To copy the words, acts, and spirit. To be transformed into Thy likeness. To be consecrated wholly to Thee. To live entirely to Thy glory. Deliver me from attachment to things unclean. From wrong associations. From the predominance of evil passions. From the sugar of sin as well as its gall. That with self-loathing, deep contrition, earnest heart-searching, I may come to Thee, cast myself on Thee, trust in Thee, cry to Thee, be delivered by Thee. If my life is to be a crucible amid burning heat, so be it. But do Thou sit at the furnace mouth to watch the ore that nothing be lost? If I sin willfully, grievously, tormentedly, in grace take away my mourning and give me music. Remove my sackcloth and clothe me with beauty. Still my sighs and fill my mouth with song. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. forward at this time as we look towards the communion table. Scripture reveals that um, by telling us, Christ says that this is what I want my church to do, to look to these ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Lord's Supper, communion table here. Just as baptism is our... Initial symbolic act, identifying as us as believers in Jesus Christ, identifying ourselves as buried with Him and raised to newness of life. Now we, we come to the communion table. We take these elements um, as a continuation of that. And so as we partake it together, as we see each other do that, we're reminded that it wasn't we just believed Jesus one time. We are doing it right now and again and again and again. We do it continuously, and this is why 
we do it this way. And this time is built in a perfect opportunity um, for us to express um, unity as a church. Our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. It's also a time that we can just remember Christ's sinless life and the hope that we have in the atoning work that he did on our behalf. It's intended as a proclamation. We're proclaiming the gospel as we do it. Um, And then also, it's a built-in time for reflection. Where are we with the Lord as we sit and we think about these things? So uh, as we partake today, I want to invite you all to be a part of that. If you are following in repentance and faith after Jesus Christ, if you are truly walking after him, you're invited to partake this with us. Um, And then join in this celebration time. This time is meant to produce in us maybe the sadness over our sin, but then also a great celebration from the rescuing work that Jesus has done. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Let's give thanks. God, thank you for uh, what you did through your son. What a great sacrifice, one that we don't deserve, one that we can never earn. But Jesus, you laid down your life freely, painfully, for us and in our place. And we recognize as we take this bread and we hold it together and we recognize what you've done for us and and we will eat it together, Lord. It's in Jesus' name.